We are on our last session in the book of Habakkuk, and so we will open that up. Let me read that closing section out of Habakkuk chapter 3, verse 17, down through verse 19. Just three verses, and we'll finish that off this evening. Listen as I read God's word. Though the fig tree should not blossom, nor fruit be on the vines, the produce of the olive fail, and the fields yield no food. The flocks be cut off from the fold, and there be no herd in the stalls. Yet will I rejoice in the Lord. I will take joy in the God of my salvation. God the Lord is my strength. He makes my feet like the deer's, and he makes me tread on my high places. Let's pray. Lord, as always, whenever we take up to open and consider your word, we do so with a, uh, a carefulness, uh, a commitment and resolve, Lord, that we would uh, really look at it carefully, that we would understand the riches that it holds. So thankful in your mercies, in the uh, uh, complicated and oft um, negative elements in the book of Habakkuk, the way that you are uh, pleased to end it with such a glorious focus on your uh, wonderful and perfect being. Just pray tonight, God, as we bring these things, um, this book to a close, that you would bless our consideration and you would just increase our sense of uh, value for your eternal purposes, uh, for your person and being, and Lord, that this right focus would uh, set us free uh, just from circumstances holding sway over our, um, our hearts, our minds, our anxieties, and our thoughts. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Now we know as we took up Habakkuk, it had started out with Habakkuk being quite disturbed because it seemed like the wicked were getting away with things and, and he wanted God to bring judgment against the wicked. Then God explained to him, I am not merely overlooking it. I am presently at work, and the way I am working, basically I'm paraphrasing, note this, the way that I am working is not how you expect I would work, not how you would want me to work. I'm actually taking a more wicked people than the ones you're complaining about, and I'm going to bring those wicked ones against the children of Israel and Judah to bring them under punishment. And then Habakkuk is absolutely shaken and begins to say, no, 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 God, you can't do this. You're, so, you're too holy to do this. You can't. And somehow thinking that he can comprehend the wise and perfect exercise of God's holiness better than God. And yet God was merciful and patient and corrected him and explained to him who he is and his sovereign rights to do everything. And then as we came to chapter 3, Habakkuk um, finally, through the influence of God's communication and the spirit working within him, acknowledged, I need to close my mouth, I need to open my ears, I need to fall on my knees that are trembling because the way that you work is awesome and fearful. And then he comes to the end of it where he's recognizing, we've noted all along, part of his 
fear potentially is that here you have among them some few righteous of which Habakkuk might count himself. And they're being mistreated and they're being oppressed. And, and if God is going to judge the wicked among them by bringing a powerful wicked army against them, then will not some of the righteous be swept away with the wicked? Will not he himself and or other seemingly upright people face hardship and face difficulty? And I guess this is part of the challenge we have to ask ourselves. And, and people ask those kind of questions. They throw those out into the world today. And they say those simple statements such as, why do bad things happen to good people? To which, of course, we, we would say, well, who is good? Remember the occasion where one, came, one of the men came up to Jesus and said, good teacher. And he said, why do you call me good? No one is good but God. And so there, there is that, that clear sense. There, there is no bad that happens to good people. And realistically, when we understand the circumstances that we, the sin that is ours by virtue of our, the fall of Adam, and the sin that is ours by our own practice, then we would come to understand there, there actually is nothing in this life that is bad enough that would happen to us that would be sufficiently bad for what our sin deserves. All right? Now, when I say that, we can nod and affirm that, but again, being mere creatures being who we are, self-justifying, and not a holy God in absolute righteousness, we don't truly grasp the gravity of sin. We don't fully comprehend the judgment it deserves. We recognize it from what the Scriptures say, but someday, we'll, right now, it, we, we get stuck so often understanding in part. But the scriptures make it clear and we humbly acknowledge there's nothing that a man can give as a ransom for his soul. If God was to give men, any of us, even the best of us, what we deserve, we're undone. Remember, as you work your way through Job, so often Job was struggling with that. He was, in his generation, the most blameless and righteous man relative to others and he thought God had kind of crossed the line or messed up in allowing these things to happen to him but by the end of the book after God had explained his absolute authority his sovereign rights his holiness men's absolute dependence on God for everything he understood. He put his hand over his mouth. And we kind of ended last week by seeing a similar thing uh, in Habakkuk chapter 3, verse 16, as he trembles at the thought of God accomplishing all that he said he would. He yet stands back and says, look, I mean, his way would have never been to bring the Chaldeans, the Babylonian, against Israel. That would have never been his plan. And yet here they're coming, and he's frightened as to what the outcome will be. But he's trusting in God, that God is not only going to judge the wicked, he's also going to judge the Chaldeans. So Habakkuk 3.16 says, Yet I will wait 
quietly for the day of trouble to come upon the people who invade us. In other words, I know that God is going to accomplish his holy purpose, and I'm going to stop my second guessing and stop my complaining. And then he turns to this, uh, this sweet closing section that we're into today that I call a contented adoration. And he simply starts by saying this, uh, though the fig tree should not blossom, nor fruit be on the vine, and the produce of the olive fail. Now, again, for us, uh, generally speaking, if I was to go around the room here and say, when is the last time you had a fig? Some have had them more recently, and, and some like them, but we find they're not super common. And you meet a lot of people who will say, I've never even had a fig in my life. It's still, it, it's relatively common. Uh, figs were desirable in their, their, their days. We even know that Jesus himself sought to get a fig off of a fig tree one time and then cursed it because it was, it was not producing figs. Figs were those things of sweet delight. Though, uh, it was not a staple of life. It was not a necessity. It wasn't, it wasn't crucial to a balanced diet. But it was those things that people enjoyed, that people liked. The same thing, the fruit of the vine. They, they preferred their wine and their, and their beverages in that way. But you can still survive off of water, can't you? But they would prefer to have their wine. And so, and the same thing with, with the olives. I mean, here, it, it, it's among the more luxurious, it's among the higher quality and the more desirable of the things that they made use of and they cooked with. And, and so, the, the beginning thing there is, basically, it is a loss of luxuries. It's a loss of those delicacies and those delights. And I, and I do find that pretty interesting. I'm sure some of you in the, in the peculiar days in which we're living have, have listened to people uh, complain about how hard life is right now. Because, and, and, and I'm thinking, how hard life is right now. Most of us, by God's grace, still have sufficient food to eat. We probably still are able to turn on heaters and or air conditioners when necessary. We have our own vehicles to transport us from place to place. Most of us, when we sit at home, you have access to various forms of entertainment, whether it be smartphones or smart televisions or however it may be. Uh, it's astounding how people are losing their mind right now because of and, and how can we live like this and you think sometimes it would be a healthy thing for some of these people maybe to do a little bit of travel around the world and realize the things that that they think they're doing without uh, others have never had those things and never will have those things and, and not just the luxuries. When we move on to the next section, I mean, many of them struggle. It is not uncommon for, for in India, for example, uh, for a common laborer to possibly eat two meals a day, not three. 
or five like young men do. Uh, maybe one meal and then a, a few other things to try to assuage their appetites. Uh, but listen, what he's saying is here. Now, if, if we lose our luxuries, is that usually when we start to deny our faith in God? And, and that you see fig tree and, and uh, the vine and olive as luxury, you can see the explanation as they're getting ready to go into the promised land that's oft referred to as a land flowing with milk and honey. In terms of describing its bounty and luxuries, it says in Deuteronomy 8, 7, and 8, For the Lord your God is bringing you into a good land a land of brooks of water, of fountains and springs flowing out of the valleys and hills, a land of wheat and barley, of vines and fig trees and pomegranates, a land of olive trees and honey. Those phrasings are to say, this is the dreamland. This is uh, all that you would have hoped for and wanted. The same kind of thing in speaking of abundance and luxury and safety um, under King Solomon. It says like this, in Judah and Israel, 1 Kings 4.25, lived in safety from Dan even to Beersheba. Every man under his vine and under his fig tree all the days of Solomon. And so again, with that kind of phrasing, under his vine, under his fig tree, it means they all lived in relative ease, comfort, and abundance. Things were good. And you see this kind of phrasing carrying on again one more time in Haggai. It says this. Uh, and this is, it's interesting to note this because in Haggai, what's happening is they've come back from the captivity and they're living for themselves. They've kind of disregarded a focus on, on, on the temple. They've disregarded a priority for God. They've got back and they're rebuilding their houses. They're replanting their lands. And it's kind of a me first scenario, which is what we often think is, is a modern problem. Brothers, it's not a modern problem. It's a human problem that has been there. Have you ever read Genesis? It starts early on, but here it says this, is the seed yet in the barn? Indeed, the vine, the fig tree, the pomegranate, and the olive tree have yielded nothing, but from this day on, I will bless you. So again, within the language of the Old Testament, you see that this phrase, fig tree and vine, indicates a state of practical blessedness and bounty. Yes? Even if that is no longer what I have access to. Most of us would say, if I lose that, no big deal. We can enjoy as long as we have the, the basic necessities, then we can make it. But this passage speaks not only of a loss of the delicacies and delights or luxuries, it also speaks of a loss of food and flocks, a loss of the essentials, the necessities, the bare basics. Habakkuk says this, and the, food, the fields yield no food. Now, it's one thing to have no wine and no figs. It's another thing to have no food. Now, again, when it says fields yield no food, some older translations say the fields yield no wheat. Um, 
the whole point is the grains are not bearing. So the ordinary sustenance and staple of bread or rice or whatever you're having, the fields are not producing. The basic foods, not even the blessed foods, but the basic foods are not there. To which someone would say, that's okay. I don't need bread all that much. Some might say, I don't need vegetables all that much. As long as I can get my meat, as long as I can have my steak and chicken, as long as I can, you know, stay on my, what is it, ketones diet, however it is these days, the paleo diets, uh, where I, as long as I get that good, healthy, delicious protein, I'll be fine. But what you're seeing is as this passage unfolds, not only are the fields yielding no wheat or food, the flocks are cut off from the fold and there's no herd in the stalls. All right, so what is there then? I mean, so you've got no delightful things. You've got no basics in order to prepare bread and the standard staples. You've got no flocks and no herds. Now how do you eat? See, it started out, you know, uh, inconvenient. Then it, then it became in, increased to difficult. And then it pushes all the way to the lever, level of seemingly dire and disastrous. Listen to what, uh, how Leviticus uh, uh, speaks of this, uh, even of God's judgment that might be poured out on them. When I break your supply of bread, ten women shall bake your bread in a single oven and shall dole out your bread again by weight, which means it will be rationed out in portions to each individual. Uh, and you shall eat and not be satisfied. But if in spite of this, you will not listen to me, but walk contrary to me. See, one of the things that God, what, what I want us to also notice is this. Verse 26 says this. When I break your supply of bread. The fact that the figs and the vines has, have been cut off is not independently the work of the enemy. It is decretively, sovereignly, purposefully, and specifically God's hand over all. And so the fact that you've lost those things, that they're gone, that they're missing, God isn't. And, and we should stand back, and what he's standing back at that time and saying, okay, this would happen. God is the one who's doing it. And because of the rampant wickedness, do we not deserve so? And it's wise for us also to be aware that the old covenant was an exceedingly national covenant with a national people as opposed to the spiritual new covenant that is with uh, individuals who are brought into being a spiritual and holy nation in Christ where you won't see us in any, any specific country or kingdom, but we're spread throughout but here, here was that warning, and it's just important for us to remember that. When things are lost, and, and, and there are churches today that even tend to do this. Things go awry, things are lost, things are broken, things are going bad. The devil, you know. And next thing you know, they're, they're running out the door and they're rebuking the devil for doing that. And, and 
shouting and waving their hand and whatever. They're, they're trying to stop those things. But I often want to remind you, we go back and read Job chapter 1 and 2. And what is the devil actually able to accomplish by his own power, if not permitted by God? Right? He, he, he desires to kill, still, and destroy, but could he touch Job? No. He said, God says, what about Job? And, and Satan says, well, of course, because you have protected him and everything he has. Let it be taken away. Stretch out your hand, the devil says, and let his things be taken away, and then he will curse you. And then God says, behold, he is in your hand. And then Job will say, the Lord gives, and the Lord takes away. Because the hand of Satan can only extend as far as the hand of God has purposed and permitted. I know it's hard for us to fathom, but when we have that confidence, then we realize, well, does, is not all that God does wise? Is it, is it not perfect and pure? Is it not just and holy? So who am I that I would complain? Am I going to be the guy who stands there and says, God, what are you doing with the works of your hands? Am I going to be the guy who questions him? I hope not. Goes on and says this in Amos chapter, Amos, sorry, I, in India they say Amos. In Amos chapter 4, verse 6, it says this, I gave you cleanness of teeth in all your cities, and lack of bread in all your places, and you did not return to me, declares the Lord. Now, again, I guess there are certain places we may have to define what is cleanness of teeth. Not free distribution of electric toothpicks or... or toothbrushes, not rampant dentistry. What do you think is going on here? You got nothing stuck in your teeth because you're not putting anything in your mouth. You, you've got no food to get wedged in between there. And, and, and what's happening? They've still not turned to me. So what we often see is the hand of God is pleased in, in with regard particularly to the history of Israel, uh, to grant degrees of discipline that they would take note of him. Look, all disasters, all difficulties, all circumstances of loss and struggle, they come at the hand of God. And men would do well to take stock of the fact that circumstances right now may not be well why? If I were to stand before God right now, how would he look upon me? It says in Psalm 145, verse 15 and 16, the eyes of all look to you and you give them their food in the due season. Again, my emphasis is simply this. When you have it, it's come from God. When you don't have it, God has purposed that it be withheld from you. you know, as I think I sent out uh, in an email, as it says in Ecclesiastes, remember this, 
in the day of prosperity and in the day of adversity, God has made one as well as the other. We tend to think otherwise. Uh, I want to draw your attention briefly to Augur's statement. Augur writes, uh, is a wise man who writes Proverbs chapter 30. And Augur admits a limitation to himself. I don't want us to, be, to have the same weakness that Augur had. I appreciate his recognition of his own limitations. But the, the sense of natural need, you know, even if you study at some point, you'll, you'll, if, you, if you go to college, at some point you'll have to study psychology and they'll show you a hierarchy of needs and one of the crucial things on that hierarchy of needs is basic food and drink. Well, listen to what it says, uh, Augur's awareness in, in Proverbs 30, verse 8 and 9. He pleads with God, remove far from me falsehood and lying. I do like that he, he, he says that. You know, I, a part of me also wants him to make a commitment God, I covenant with you not to lie with my lips. But there is a, a healthy sense of every commitment we might make to goodness or godliness, we will need God's grace enabling us and strengthening us. And so, remove these things from me. I love the fact that even, it, it, remember, Jesus speaking to his disciples near the end told them, pray that you do not come into temptation. You know, where, whereas we have people today who are ready to run right into the face of temptation. And tragically, they think, well, I'll run there, and then when things get tough, I'll cry out for help. Why are you there in the first place? Why have you gone there? But he, he says this, put lying in, uh, falsehood and lying far from me. And give me neither poverty nor riches. I know you don't hear many people pray that these days. Give me neither poverty nor riches. He says, feed me with the food that is needful for me, lest I be full and deny you and say, who is the Lord? In other words, I'm good. I have everything I need. I don't need God. I've got this. We, we've noted before the, uh, the Lord's prayer so clearly says, give us this day our daily bread. And not, not by way of mere repetition, but by way of a real sense of it. We oft don't feel a sense need to request daily bread because we've got ample in our pantry for a week, possibly an emergency month if we dip into the canned goods, right? Uh, so so what, what Augur's noting is this. Look, if I have too much, I'm going to think light of you. I'm going to just carry on with my life and it's going to become all about enjoying those things and all about myself. And I don't trust myself with abundance. 
So don't give it to me. Deny it to me because I'm afraid in the, if you don't deny it to me, at some point I'll deny you because I'll be devoted to the things of this world. Love not this world or the things of this world. And he goes on to say this. Um, or lest I be poor and steal and profane the name of my God. I know that if I'm in lack and I'm in need, I'm not going to be patient enough to wait on the Lord. And in desperation, I'm going to go steal something. And having claimed a commitment to Christ, then I'll profane his name. So he's, he's basically saying, God, you know my weaknesses. You know, keep me from my weaknesses. Don't give me too much. Don't give me too little. Now, how many of us are ready to say, God, please deny me these things if they will not do me spiritual good. If they will ultimately be a practical distraction to who you've called me to be and how you've called me to live, please deny me these things. I would love to hear people be willing to, to say it. Uh, what we often say is this, well, if I have a lot, then think about how much I can do for the Lord. And you know what? There are, there are people that God has, has given abundantly to, and they really give generously to the Lord. They really are generous in good works. They don't cling to those things. They, they love their neighbors. They love their brothers. They, there is. But there are a host of others who have found that the love of money is the root of all kinds of evil. And it is a severe distraction and, and becomes a, a dangerous, debilitating pursuit. Um, so aware of his own weakness, he's saying also that he does not want to, to be without. But, but then remem reminding this, as Isaiah 55, which we considered pretty recently, uh, takes the idea of food and moves it into a more significant spiritual arena. It says this, and, and this is quoted over in John 6, and so I've got both of them there. Isaiah 55, 2. Why do you spend your money for that which is not bread, and your labor for that which does not satisfy? Listen diligently to me, and eat what is good, and delight yourself in rich food. Now, what, it's an interesting thing there because he's talking, what he's trying to present to them is there is two different kinds of bread and there's, there's two different kinds of food and what they are laboring and what they are spending it for is not the meaningful bread, not the abiding bread. It's the bread that when you eat it, it's gone. And it has no abiding value. Jesus will say it this way as he opens it up. Do not work for the food that perishes, but for the food that endures to eternal life, which the Son of Man will give you. For on him, God the Father has set his seal. All right, so what he's doing is presenting differently. So now let's move it forward. All right, say I don't have the luxuries. Say I don't have the necessities. 
for physical life. Am I okay? Again, I take note of what Jesus says in John chapter 4. As they came back, remember Jesus had rested at the well while the disciples went on to buy food and bring it back as he talks to the Samaritan woman. And it says this, um, he said to them, I have food to eat that you do not know about. And so the disciples said to one another, has anyone brought him something to eat? Why did they say that? Because they oft struggled with their minds fixed on the flesh and on the physical, didn't they? When he would say, beware of the leaven of the Pharisees, what is he thinking? Oh, he's, we don't have any bread. No, the teaching of the Pharisees. What, they're, they're constantly going back to the, to the physical things. And Jesus will express it this way in verse 34. Listen, my food is to do the will of him who sent me and to accomplish his work. Well, how's that going to fill your stomach? Well, it may not fill your stomach, but what he's saying is, that is what I deem the absolute necessity. Food is not going to be considered by me to be the necessity. The, for the world, food and shelter are minimum necessities. For me, it is knowing and serving God that are the minimum necessities. Everything else is, is less than. In Deuteronomy, it's going to say this in Deuteronomy 28 to the children of Israel. It says, all these curses, and, and they were harsh curses of, of enemies coming upon them, of, of blight on their crops, of, of miserable things, will come upon you and overtake you. Because you did not obey the voice of the Lord your God to keep his commandments and his statutes that he commanded you. They shall be a sign against you and your offspring forever. Because you did not serve the Lord your God with joyfulness and gladness of heart because of the abundance of all things. So what is he telling them there? I'm bringing you into a place of abundance. I'm going to bless you with abundance. And the right response to all I've given you is to serve the Lord and to do so with joy and gladness, which by this point is clearly the opposite of murmuring and grumbling, complaining which are the words that we often use, which characterized the children of Israel so often in the wilderness, didn't it? And so here they, they were, again, not only were they to serve, and not only are we to serve, but to serve with what? Joy and gladness. Why? Because he is better than life. In Deut uh, Deuteronomy 8, before we move on to the next point, uh, he humbled you, verse 3, and let you hunger and then fed you with manna. So he's the one who, who, who let them hunger. And remember, it, when you read that, it, it's a little bit heartbreaking because instead of saying, God has brought us out, he will provide. Or even coming to Moses and saying, we're out of food, um, Cry out to God on our behalf that he might provide. Instead, what did they do? 
grumbled and complained. And these are some of the things that I'm off, just my heart is just amazed at. Because when they grumbled and complained, what did God do? He even gave them food. I think, how merciful, how patient. When, when the scriptures say he is merciful, full of steadfast love and slow to anger, indeed. We also see that when his anger uh, reaches a tipping point, his wrath pours out in remarkable brutality. And we should see all of those things revealed in the scripture. But it says this, that he might, God did this, he, he waited until you were hungry, and then he showed you that he can miraculously supply your need and meet your hunger. But the design of, of even that, making you physically hungry, miraculously providing for your physical hunger, was to demonstrate to you something even deeper. And what is that? It is this. That he might make you know that man does not live by bread alone. But man lives by every word that comes from the mouth of the Lord. And that's one of the things we see. Uh, every word that comes from the mouth of the Lord. Remember what Hebrews 1 says? Hebrews 1, 1 and 2 of our Savior. He spoke all kinds of different ways through the prophets in the past. But in these last days, He has spoken to us by His Son. And the Holy Spirit was going to come and remind the apostles of all of the things that Jesus taught them while he was with them. He was going to take the things of Christ and declare it to them so that what we have, what we have is more important than food. We remember that Jesus brings this very passage up uh, when, when he's in his uh, moment of temptation in Matthew 4.4 and Luke 4.4. When, when the devil is tempting him to turn uh, stones into bread. And, and again, I'll remind you of this. At this point, how long had it been since Jesus had eaten? Forty days. I mean, I don't know if you've ever attempted fasting for a season, a period of fasting and prayer and seeking the Lord on a particular issue. Uh, some of us consider skipping breakfast fasting. Um, I'm not sure that counts. Uh, but 40 days, I, you know, I've never gone, I don't think, four days, except possibly in the midst of a, of a severe illness, four days of which I have no recollection of, all right? And, and, and nor is the body capable of taking anything in. But 40 days, and remember, the scripture says at that point he was famished, is the simple word that's given. And even in that state, what does Jesus say? Bread is not the essential thing. Bread is not the important thing. The word of God is the important thing. You know, you know. And so sometimes... This is not a, not a self-defense in any ways because we have sweet, sweet people that God has brought in here and this has never happened. I've only heard tale of it in places far, far away. That on occasion, 
it, it's been said that on occasion, a preacher somewhere, sometime, someplace might become a little long-winded. And in the process of that, it crosses the 12 o'clock hour. And a stomach begins to grumble. What's wrong? Doesn't he understand it's lunchtime? Doesn't he understand how hungry we are? Have we been sitting there for 40 days yet? No, I'm just but, but the sense is, I would hope that God might cultivate in us. And again, we don't want mere wind. But if there is real meat and bread and freshness being set out there, why, why, why wouldn't our, and God help our hearts to be more like, ah, uh, you know, the kids nudge, I'm getting hungry. Yeah, yeah, feed on this. Here is the rich food. Come on, listen diligently and feast on the rich food. That's what we want. Um, you know. And those are the things that amazingly God stirred up in, in history, even in our own country. We've heard of the, the Great Awakenings, the First and Second Great Awakenings. One of the things that's so interesting when you read Asahel Nettleton, when you read uh, Jonathan Edwards, what they were doing before when there was no great awakening, and people were, do you see I'm yawning? You know, sending subtle messages that it's a good time to end the old sermon. Now, when the sermon is ended, the people are still remaining there, waiting and desiring to hear more. Weeping and hungering and praying. And he, did, and he says, you know what happened from one day to the day? We changed nothing about our methods. We changed nothing about our techniques. The difference is the Spirit of God gave the people such a hunger and desire for His Word. Such a conviction of sin. Such a yearning for holiness. It, it, it was astounding. And I think sometimes we ought to pray for those who teach and preach to us, but we ought also pray, God, as I come, give me a hunger and thirst. Give, help your spirit to so, so grant me an attentiveness, grant me a, an understanding, a sense of application to how this, how this goes into my life. Let it be that I don't know that he accidentally went 15 minutes over. Or whatever it may be. But listen. So, so these are the things that, that, that Jesus is showing. A, a distinctiveness of the spiritual value over against. And I'm not, by the way, I'm not lobbying for you to permit me to lengthen the sermons. You all are sweet and uh, we, those are not issues here. But I know they do exist out there. I think I've told you before. I, I met with a man who was the whole regional um, bishop of the Methodist church in Maharashtra. And he had told me that they recently had had a meeting of all of the different pastors and passed on the declaration that sermons should be limited to approximately 12 to 14 minutes. That was the new edict that was coming down. And it's like, uh-oh, that's uh, tremendously unhealthy. You know, put it this way. I would like to say, uh, how about also when, when you sit down to eat, you got 
12 to 14 seconds and then get up from the table. Is that going to get it done? No. Do you want the person cooking for you to spend 12 to 14 minutes in the kitchen? It's, it, you know, God help us. But listen, so all these things, now the, uh, he's saying, all this may and probably will come upon us. The loss of luxuries, the loss of necessities, where we don't know how we will survive tomorrow. We don't know what's going to happen today because we got nothing. But then what does it say? Yet will I rejoice in the Lord. Hmm. It's very important to note that. Again, he's rejoicing in the Lord. And I, just, just as a note here, look what it says in uh, Hebrews chapter 10. This is a passage that uh, oh, could do some of us so well to consider this. The, the saints that are being written to in Hebrews, it says this of them, that they had compassion for those who were in prison. And it's always baffled me, this next sentence. And they joyfully accepted the plundering of your property. Now, how many people do you think are going to joyfully accept the plundering of their property. I mean, it's, it's a strange phrase, isn't it? I mean, I think rarely someone has gotten home and find, found their house scavenged and broken into and, and all of their goods of any seeming value missing and said, yes! Hallelujah! Have they done that? The, the tendency is different, but... Uh, well, the, the scripture tells us why they could do that. Now, hopefully, and sometimes we might have the good sense where we would say, well, yes, we were not here when they came. And so they took these things, but they took not my daughter. They took not my son. Uh, they took not our lives. They, 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 took, they, they didn't injure us. So uh, that's something to rejoice in. But for these, it's something far more than, again, the bodily that we tend to lean towards. How is it that they were able to joyfully accept that their possessions were plundered? It says, since you knew that you yourselves had a better and an abiding one. A better and a more lasting one. Therefore, do not throw away your confidence, which has great reward. For you have need of endurance, so that when you have done the will of God, you may receive what is promised. The commitment is this. Hey, I have an inheritance reserved in heaven for me that they can't touch. And what is awaiting me is so much better than all of these other things. So, ha, you didn't get the things that matter. And you can't. You don't have access to them. And even if you think you can come and get me, all you do is send me to my inheritance faster. Ha, I still win. Well, And I want to note this. In the Lord, yet will I rejoice in the Lord. It starts with just that simple phrase, in the 
Lord. It is in Him, not in ourselves. Look what Psalm 93 says. I've encouraged you, and I, and I do encourage you on your own to read Psalm 33, 34, 46 with these thoughts in mind. You reflect on the Lord, who He is, what He has given done, what He is giving and doing, and what He will give and do. But notice the first one that I mentioned. Beyond the giving and the doing that has happened, is going on, and is still awaiting, who he is, yet will I rejoice in the Lord. The Lord gives and the Lord takes away, yet I still have the Lord. Psalm 97, 12 says, rejoice in the Lord, O you his righteous, and give thanks to his holy name. Again, a simple encouragement from time to time and season to season. Many of you know Adam Newland. I spoke with him recently, and he said he's again a fresh rereading uh, Arthur Pink's The Attributes of God. And he said, it's again coming with such freshness and such power, and it is healthy to fix our minds on those things once again. Because the scriptures will remind us in terms of how in everything with prayer and supplication, we don't want to be anxious. It'll say also, uh, fix your mind or contemplate these things. Whatever is noble, whatever is excellent, whatever is pure, whatever is praiseworthy, think on these things. And I will tell you this over and over again. There is nothing so excellent so noble, so pure and praiseworthy as our God and as our Savior. <laughs> you know, I've oft thought, you know, many people will, and I'm not prescribing a pattern, but people have developed forms to assist people in, in prayer, uh, particularly as they're, as they're young in the faith, and they might say, well, use that. Acts methods start with adoration, then they move to confession and, and, and thanksgiving and supplication. Work your way through ACTS. Starts with adoration. In most of our experience, what, is, what do prayers begin with? Supplication. What do prayers end with? What's the middle of our prayers? <laughs> All right, it, 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 it. but wouldn't it be blessed, and I, I say this uh, from time to time, and it does happen. If you get, sometimes if you get started and you have a limited time to pray because you have a meeting or an appointment, and you get started contemplating God's excellence, His glory, His beauty, His holiness, wouldn't it be wonderful if, oh no, I've run out of time, and all I got to was adoration. <laughs> Wouldn't that be great? It'd be fine, because remember what Jesus says, uh, God knows what you have need of before you ask. I mean, even before it is on our lips, He knows it all together. Now, we do and are called to pour out our hearts before Him. We are told to lay out our supplications. We're called to pray for the saints and for one another. Sure. We should and we must do that. But let us be those who rejoice in the Lord. And sometimes just in who He is without the additional contemplation of what He's done for me. That's step two. 
And realistically, if I spend some serious focus on who He is and then what He's done for me in the past, it's going to be really hard to complain with whatever trials are going on right now, <laughs> with, it, with, with whatever's lacking. And, and what I'm saying, realistically, if you think on who He is, what He's done in the past, what He has promised to do ahead, then it really doesn't matter how dark it is. Well, Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want, because He'll give me everything I need. Well, that's not exactly what it says. Well, He leads me beside the still waters, the green pastures. That's not the whole chapter. It also says, Yea, though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death. Now, does that sound like it's a, a good season? No. It's, it's, the literal rendering there is actually the valley of deep darkness. Thou art with me. I mean, that, that's, that's the most important phrase. Even... Because look, when you're in the green pasture, you're enjoying the grass. When you're beside the still water, you're enjoying that freshness and all those kinds of things. But in the, in the valley, there's only one thing to enjoy. So those dark valleys are healthy seasons. And, and some of us would be shocked if we were to read some autobiographies of men that God has mightily used. I mean, some of us would not realize how often a man such as Charles Spurgeon lived under a great sense of darkness. We're like, how could he? He had such a clear sense of who God was. He had such an extraordinary giftedness to communicate God's truth. How in the world could that man be discouraged and feel a deepness and a heaviness in his heart. And he would tell you he felt it almost relentlessly. At times to the point of seemingly sensing to be debilitated. But God is with him. You know, uh, again our time is running out. So let me just uh, uh, rip through these. Again, be glad in the Lord Rejoice in the Lord. In Isaiah, it says this. Um, uh, I'm going to go down to verse 44. As it, as it quotes what will be quoted in Philippians 2, it then says, Only in the Lord it shall be said of me are righteousness and strength. To him shall come and be ashamed all who were incensed against him. In the Lord all the offspring of Israel shall be justified and shall glorify. And we remember Philippians so often says, rejoice in the Lord always, and again I say rejoice. And I want, people, I want us to take note of this. Let's spend time in our thoughts rejoicing in the Lord. Not always just in the provisions He's given and the bounty that we have and the pleasures we enjoy, but in Him. I mean, I think when I think of at His right hand, there are pleasures ever, evermore. It's probably not my favorite tunes. It's probably not my favorite meals. It's probably far more glorious than that. I will see him as he is, be renewed and glorified like Christ, that I will be able to behold God in the fullness of his glory. 
something that even now we, we can't contemplate. No man has seen God at any time. And even those who kept caught veiled glimpses feared they were dead to die. Page 16. Really, again, when we say, uh, yet will I rejoice in the Lord, I will joy in the God of my salvation. God, the Lord, is my strength. God, the Lord, is my safety. Now, most of those are self-explanatory and, and things that we oft relish together. So I'm just going to go to the last one so that I can help make sense of that for you, where it says, God, the Lord, is my safety. It says, he makes my feet like the deer's. That does not mean we will have hoofs of any kind or some peculiar uh, appendage. It, and he makes me tread on the high places. The, I, the, the sense of that is that's where you were, they were safe from the prey. That's where they were uh, safe from, uh, from being prey to the wild animals. The high places, the, the rocky mountains, uh, the crags, these were the places of safety and the places of deliverance. And you can see that even uh, uh, played out in a number of uh, different passages. Uh, and I've given you Psalm 18 that explains how that sense of feet like a deer and, and set on the heights is a statement of, I'm safe. He's my strength. He's my shield. And I just end by reading uh, uh, Psalm 73 at the very end. And may God help us to remember this as the psalmist cries out. Whom have I in heaven but you? And there is nothing on earth that I desire besides you. My flesh and my heart may fail. But God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. For behold, those who are far away from you shall perish. You put to an end everyone who is unfaithful to you. But for me, it is good to be near to my God. I have made the Lord God my refuge that I may tell of your works. Amen. So we don't know. How dark the days will come. We know that many of our brothers and sisters and, and people in our community are facing dark days. We know the only thing that has eternal and abiding value. Let us declare to them not a hope in the riches of this world, but the only real hope that are the riches of the glory of His grace in Christ Jesus. Lord, we thank you for helping us uh, in the time that we've had tonight to go through and enjoy uh, these things in the closing section of Habakkuk, where all uh, the confusion and the doubting and the struggles with circumstances and, and the uh, perplexing nature of your providence at times uh, leads us to uh, questioning and confusing. Lord, we thank you that uh, you can at the end of it, and you did for Habakkuk here, just humble his heart, fix him on his knees, and give him that sense that in the Lord, you have given him salvation. You will give him strength. Whatever may come, you are his Lord, and that is the best and most glorious thing. Lord, we thank you for the confidence uh, that is not rooted in this life, not rooted in these days, not rooted in riches and the things that we have. Lord, even as you say in the book of Hebrews that um, not, to, not to love riches, but to be content that the Lord has said, 
I will never leave you nor forsake you. God, we thank you. And may you help us, even in the seasons of comfort, ease, and abundance, never to lose sight of your majesty, your weightiness, your glory, and our need and value and love for you. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.